Welcome to Dallas Baptist University in the spring leadership lecture series featuring Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We're so thrilled and honored to host this event in partnership with the World Affairs Council of DFW. We've now hosted this event or an event similar with them three or four times and they always serve as such a gracious partner and host and we're thrilled to work with them as our missions align. My name is Jonathan Fetchner and I serve as the Executive Director of the Institute for Global Engagement and I have the distinct privilege of introducing our speakers in order of appearance tonight. Our first speaker is uh, our DBU president, Dr. Adam Wright, who has served as the sixth president of DBU. Under his tenure and his time as president, he has increased the student population living on campus, added academic programs, grown the endowment, and so much more. We're certainly honored to have him here as our university president. Moderating the conversation tonight is the council's president and CEO, Liz Brailsford. Liz previously serves as a chief, chief operating officer of the World Affairs Council of America based in Washington, D.C. Her internationally focused career began uh, with experiences living and teaching in Japan. She then moved to Minneapolis, and she's worked in consulting work with the USAID and USDA. Liz, Liz serves on the boards across DS, DFW and helps with mentorship programs and raising up young women to have careers in the international affairs world. She holds an MPA from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School, and she has a BA from the University of South Carolina. And finally, but certainly not least, former Secretary of State, Mr. Pompeo, who served as the 70th Secretary of State for the United States of America and the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. In his four years under the Trump administration, he tackled numerous challenges, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, obstacles in the US-China relationship, and issues of relig religious freedom across the globe. Secretary Pompeo graduated from the United States Military Academy, first in his class, and he also has a law degree from the Harvard Law School, some mild accomplishments. After his time in law, he pursued entrepreneurship in aerospace and oil, where he served as the CEO of Thayer Aerospace for 10 years. Secretary Pompeo began his political career in 2011 when he was elected to the House of Representatives for Kansas's fourth district, where he served four terms before joining the Trump administration. These experiences led him to a historical feat as the only individual who has ever served as both the United States' most senior diplomat and the head of its premier espionage agency. He is here tonight to talk to us about his new book entitled Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. In it, he details the formulation of his revolutionary America First policies, interactions with world leaders, and time under the Trump administration. With these experiences, Secretary Pompeo lays a roadmap of the trends and players that are shaping the world today, providing a unique geopolitical analysis. His story is of leadership, that in a changing world will inspire leaders, but leave them with a greater appreciation in America. I think everyone in the room can agree with that. We certainly have an exciting night ahead of us. Thank you for joining us. Please welcome to the stage DBU President, Dr. Adam Wright. Okay, so when you have a former CIA director in the house, you don't make any sudden movements, okay? <laughs> Uh, now I want to welcome you to Dallas Baptist University. Jonathan Fetchner, thank you for leading uh, as the executive director of the IGE uh, here at DBU. Uh, we are glad to have you back. Jonathan led uh, effectively a nonprofit here in Dallas uh, for several years, and now he's working on his PhD. He is learning what it means to pursue a terminal degree, and, and we don't think it'll kill you, Jonathan. We know you'll, you'll get through it. If you are uh, not a subscriber uh, of the IGE, uh, you need to do so. Uh, we put out a daily briefing, a daily article that uh, really discerns news differently from a biblical worldview, gives you the top six or seven stories of the day uh, through the lens of, of how we might view it through our faith. Uh, we do things through the Institute for Global Engagement just like this. We want to be a catalyst in our world for spiritual renewal, and we invite you to join in that movement. Uh, I want to say that I'm thankful, uh, really beyond expression, for Liz Brailsford, uh, the leader of the World Affairs Council. It has been a wonderful partnership that DBU has enjoyed uh, over the years, uh, bringing in incredible thought leaders as we engage the life of the mind and really bring together the scholars and the practitioners 
uh, in unique ways. So uh, I know there are many of you that are supportive of the World Affairs Council that are here with us this evening, and I want to welcome you uh, to the campus and, and thank you for being here. Uh, there are so many people I could recognize in here tonight, but I particularly wanted to recognize uh, some of our DBU uh, Board of Trustee members, both former uh, trustees and present uh, trustees that are here this evening. We would not be who we are today had it not been for the support of many of our trustees and many of those individuals in the room who help us in our own ways at DBU never give an inch. Uh, they are guardians of the sacred trust, and I am so grateful for them, and I would be remiss if I did not uh, acknowledge uh, our former president and first lady, Gary and Sheila Cook, who are here. They led for 28 years. Being eight years almost into this role, I have no idea how you did that, Dr. Cook, uh, but we're grateful for you. Uh, we also have friends who have literally come from around the world uh, to be with us here this evening on University Hill, and if I recognize them all in the manner that they're worthy of that recognition and respect and honor. We would be here all night. However, I did particularly wish to welcome a group here this evening from Taipei Economic and Cultural Office from Houston, um, Dr. Charles Koo, who is one of our DBU trustees, uh, really an advocate uh, for Taiwan, uh, really an advocate for international education. Oftentimes open up the paper and see mayors, representatives, government leaders, with this man somewhere around the world. And so Dr. Ku, it's a pleasure to have you and the delegation from Taipei here with us tonight. Thank you. Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Pompeo's visits to Taiwan on multiple occasions was very helpful in improving East Asian relations uh, during his tenure as Secretary of State. And finally, I want you to know, if you're a guest here with us tonight, and you've never uh, been on campus here at DBU before, I really want to extend a heartfelt welcome to you. You know, I said this before, but I dare you to find another university president at a nationally ranked comprehensive liberal arts university who would stand boldly before an audience like this and say that we stand unapologetically for Christ and country. That is very rare in the world that we live in today. And I want you to know that at DBU, our DBU family doesn't wake up in the morning wondering whose we are, who we are going to be today, what we're going to be today. We wake up knowing that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and that we rest in the security knowing that we find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. Our students, they go to classes knowing that God has a special plan for their lives. Our students are met by professors, uh, several of whom have come tonight uh, to be with us, who love the Lord, understand the Bible, know how to integrate their faith in every aspect of their call, recognize the importance of stewarding the life of the mind. And we attempt to pursue excellence for the sake of the kingdom. Regrettably, this is not common practice in the world in which we live today. Uh, and so I wanna encourage you to pray for us, to pray for us at DBU. Um, I believe that we're living literally in an inflection point in our world and we must not sit idly by, but actively engage in what has been named since the founding of our country as this great American experiment. So here's my shameless plug. There's not gonna be any offering plates passed tonight, <laughs> but if you like what you see and you like what you hear and you enjoy what you experience, uh, here on our campus tonight, uh, don't be an idle passerby, but be actively engaged in the work that's happening on this campus because we are, we are raising up transformers of culture. More than 90% of our students are gonna go serve in some type of secular vocational context, and they're gonna go out ready and prepared to serve as Christ-centered servant leaders. Uh, tonight, we have the very special opportunity to hear from a true American patriot. Uh, someone who's fought hard to preserve the values and the ideals that are vital for our future. Someone who understands the value of never giving an inch so that we can go the extra mile. So with that, I wanna ask you to join me in welcoming one of our nation's great Christian servant leaders, Mike Pompeo.
quite a room to get around. I mean, I've seen this room busy. It's even busier for uh, someone here. That's great. This is beautiful. Thank you all for being here tonight. Well, good evening. Thank you for coming. I want to start off by saying thank you to Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you to DBU. We love partnering with you. We love being with you. So I have to start off by saying that I was with the secretary in May of 2021, which was the first in-person program that I did with the World Affairs Council. And now here we are again. Two years on, yes. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to doing this. That was fun that night. And it was uh, like your book. A lot of fun and great stories. <laughs> you even got Tocqueville in there. I did. I snuck it in and, and get go. smart at it all. It's all in there. And it's all exactly. in there. Serious philosopher that he is. Yes. You're going to read a great book. <laughs> uh, so you look great. Thank you. And uh, I'm not as skinny as I am on the book cover, but I'm trying. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. That was that was peak peak skinniness for Mike. Yes, exactly. Looking mighty <laughs> presidential, I must say, on this book cover. <laughs> So uh, let's just start off by saying, have you gone through any of the boxes in your garage yet? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> that's a great first question. Um, no, I, I haven't, but I did sell my Corvette. Dump Sorry. it in the lake. D- didn't, yes, exactly. Dump it uh, in the lake. But before we go, I just, first of all, I do want to say thank you. Thank you for hosting me here. By the way, I'm the former CI director, so you can move about. There's no risk. It's... <laughs> It's all, it's, all, it's all good, yes. And I, I see some of my former colleagues. I won't tell you which ones they are, but they're all around you. So <laughs> you can spend the rest of the evening guessing. Yes. Anyway, thank you. And thanks, Liz, for having me here. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Secretary. So speaking of classified docs, uh, of which you've had access to for most of your career, if not all, yes. uh, since you gradu- graduated from West Point, So it's now come out that classified documents were found at former Vice President Pence's house. Who's next? What what are we doing? Are we doing something wrong here? It's a fair question. It's a mess. Uh, I don't know the details. There's at least three, right? The former president, current president, and and former vice president. It's it's just a mess. uh, I'll speak personally. So when, when you have a senior office, I had a secure facility in my home, both as CI director and as Secretary of State. And so we had lots of documents that I would carry in in a pouch through the house upstairs to where the skiff was. There was a safe in there. So there's a sequence for handling to avoid precisely what we're seeing. Uh, I don't think I have any documents in my house. I'm, I'm sure the FBI is there now and they're on TV showing the document. He knows you're here. Yes, they know, they know here. I'm here. Yes, no, all the more reason to go now. Yes. Uh, but I, I, can, I guess I can imagine, uh, you know, somehow you tucked it in the wrong place and got it to the wrong place. My, my, my comments here are, this is serious stuff. Each of us who signed up to uh, take on these jobs signs documents for proper handling. Sounds like that didn't happen. Um, if, if I got it wrong, I should, I should be held accountable, too. I would, I would regret that I made that mistake uh, and hope that what it was wasn't super important. Uh, so there are levels of this too. There are there are things that are classified that ought to be classified, but you know if they get out, you don't put a soldier, a sailor, a marine somewhere at risk. And there are other things that are really, 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 really sensitive. I hope none of those are in any of these places. I can't imagine that they are, uh, and I hope so. And then I hope we'll all figure out processes to uh, prevent this from happening. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. When I was you talked about a when I was a young soldier, I had a CEOI signals classified document on my person at all times when I was in the field, um, everybody's got a responsibility to do better. And it sounds like there were screw-ups, and that's bad. Are we over-classifying documents? I mean, is our process off? Yeah, the process is a little off, uh, but it's, that's not the problem here. Uh, if it's classified, even if it ought not be or need not be, you still have, it's classified, and you have an obligation to protect it. Uh, so yeah, we could probably do better and reduce the number, but it's not, it's not egregious. Uh, and that's, that's not the solution to this particular problem. We may still need to not classify as much, but that's, that doesn't answer what do you do with things that are, in fact, classified. There was a lot of turnover in the, the Trump administration. <laughs> Just a little. A little bit. Yeah, you're very polite. You could, you could work in the State <laughs> Department. Yes, very diplomatic of you. Yes. Uh, you made it. What was your secret sauce? How did you survive yeah, for so long? Uh, no, no, no particular secret, I suppose. Uh, 
you know, in the book, I, I, I talk about this a little bit. Uh, two, two thoughts. First, the turnover problem is real uh, and not good uh, for a host of reasons. Any of you who've taken on a big new job, it takes you a while to figure out what you're doing, who's where, build your team, get focused on the mission. So each time we would have a new Secretary of Defense or a new National Security Advisor, we went through four or five of each. Um, you know, I, I, we'd have to get, get them where they needed to be and not their fault, just new. Uh, and so it, it, didn't, it denied us the knowledge that comes from time on station and made it harder. And we got less done as a result of that. I, I'm, I'm sure of it. As for me, how did I survive? Uh, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, there is so much noise in Washington, D.C. And if you get caught up in it, this, was, this is true for all of us. If you let the noise catch you and take you off of your mission set, you will underperform. Second piece is I, I pretty much knew what my jobs were each time as CIA director and secretary of state. Donald Trump got 270 electoral votes. I got zero. I worked for him. By the way, he would remind me of that. <laughs> with, with some frequency, in fact. Uh, he would also remind me that I campaigned really hard for Senator Rubio and not for him. Yes. Uh, he would, whatever we would disagree, he'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're the Rubio guy. Uh, I mention that because everyone who serves in any role, wherever you are, whether you're serving at this university, working, um, uh, leaders matter, chains of commands matter. Um, I was vigorous about telling the president what I thought. Uh, but when he made the call, uh, he wanted to go you know, sweep left. We, I did my damnedest to make the State Department of the CIA sweep left. Mm -hmm. And the uh, last piece of this was in the, this was easier as CIA director. Uh, because the media is not with you, which was an enormous blessing. Uh, but as Secretary of State, you are a public figure. The media travels with you. You are expected to be down there in the briefing room a couple, three times a week. Uh, you do the Sunday TV shows. Lots of exposure, lots of chances. I, I never created any space between myself and President Trump. I never allowed the media to drive even an inch of space between us publicly. Because once you do that, you have undermined America. You have undermined the mission that you're on. And if you go watch, you can see there are times I, you, can, you can almost, my wife would laugh because she can tell by the expression on my face. She's like, you didn't exactly know how to get out of that one, did you? Uh, yeah, you know, something right, yeah, the tweet. My, my button's bigger than your button, whatever. Uh, or language that I wouldn't use and they would put it in front of you. And the goal wasn't, the goal wasn't to help the American people understand American foreign policy. The goal was to create problems for the Trump administration, and I was never going to let them do that. And so uh, I didn't, and I think for that reason, um, focus, drive, mission, and then the ability to understand how to survive in that political space and support the President of the United States, uh, that, that caused me uh, not to get fired, <laughs> and uh, the first part allowed me to continue on the mission. And there were, I talk about this in the book, there were those who just couldn't or just chose not to do that. Um, different choices. I frankly didn't have any time for that. I, I, don't, I don't have, you know, this may sound mean or harsh, I, have, I don't have time for people who aren't on the mission. If you're not on the mission, that's fantastic. Go do something different. Uh, but if you sign up knowing full well what's in front of you, my expectation is everyone, whether you're my boss or you're working alongside me or you're working uh, ostensibly for me, uh, it's get after it. And uh, folks who didn't, it was tough. And the Trump administration was a pretty unique place to be as well. Hmm. I mean, look, I ran a machine shop in Wichita, Kansas. You can write it down. That will not happen again. There'll be no Secretary of State who ran a machine shop in Kansas. Uh, we, were, we were all pretty unique characters. But you were on the House Intelligence Committee in, in the House. I was. No. I was. No, I, I served on the House Intelligence Committee for four years before I uh, got that a crazy phone call from Mike Pence. Which you said right away. He realizes that I campaigned for Rubio, right? Yes, I did. I, I got, it was a, I'd never met Donald Trump and was reelected on Tuesday, just the same election President Trump was elected and got a call that following Sunday from the vice president-elect, who I knew a little bit. He'd served with me for a couple years. Uh, and we, our wives had been in a Bible study together. That was really the deepest part of the Pence-Pompeo relationship. Uh, and he called and said, would you consider joining the administration? I said, Mike, goodness gracious, man, I campaigned really hard against him. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you and everybody else. Uh, uh, and called me back a day later, told me they were thinking about CIA. Uh, and my gosh, what an incredible privilege. Yeah. So the State Department, you said leading the State Department was, well, fascinating. <laughs> Is that what I said? You did. Yes. That's that, a quote. That's, that's true, a quote actually. I stand by that. <laughs> and I don't doubt it. You were secretary for roughly 
three years or yep. so. A thousand days exactly when I walked out. A thousand uh, days. Yeah. So why is the State Department so difficult to, f to fix? Uh, Rex Tillerson tried to bring in some outside people. That wasn't successful. Why can't we fix what's going on? Ah, uh, goodness. Uh, if I so knew hard? the answer to that, I'd have fixed it. Uh, and I didn't fix it. It is huge, 70,000 people. It is global. And when you come in as a secretary, you do not have the power to promote people based on merit or fire people if they are not getting on the mission set. Uh, you add to that um, most of the workforce there's the policy workforce, the, the career foreign service officers who are responsible for sort of advising and assisting in policy development, that pretty much know they're going to be there longer than you. Uh, and for me, I'll speak personally, look, we, I can't imagine that 5% of them voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the politics of any of them were other than what I saw. And they, it wasn't so much that they were, they were left, although they were. It was mostly they were part of this cultural establishment in Washington, D.C. And we were just not that. <laughs> Uh, and so whether it was the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem, the strike on Qasem Soleimani, the idea that we were going to put the president in the room with Chairman Kim, these were things for them that were just out of bounds, right? They weren't consistent with the way we, we, the way we do things in Washington. Long-time policies. So Long-time policies. By the way, uh, Republican policies, Democrat policies, yeah. these are truly not all partisan issues. And so we were constantly pushing and running against the grain, and it made it incredibly difficult to corral them and get them to... Uh, support. There were, there were, out of the 70,000, there were lots of them that were doing the right thing. I didn't want them to be, I, you don't want a conservative State Department. You, you want a State Department that answers to the President of the United States and the Secretary, who's confirmed. And um, I did not experience that. How's that for polite? Well, yeah. there's been a lot of studies done yeah. about how to fix it. Yeah. And it just is, I can't, it, it, it's, it's, it's very complicated. And you add in, it also, you also run, uh, the largest aid development organization in the world as well, the USAID that delivers humanitarian assistance across the world. Uh, and that is a complex beast in its own right with its own challenges as well. I worked with them in my time in DC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move on to a juicy part of your book. Uh, you broke a story about an alleged conversation <clears throat> with President Trump in the Oval that uh, ambassador, former Ambassador Nikki Haley, Ivanka, Ivanka Trump, and Jared Kushner uh, yes, I did. went and talked about trying to push Vice President Mike Pence out and put Haley in. And by the way, going around uh, Chief of Staff Kelly to do so. Right. So uh, a, few, a few days ago, she accused you of, quote, lies and gossip to sell books. Yes. So I, had a, I also had a conversation with her last October. Uh, with the council, by the way. Yes. So what were you trying to accomplish with that? Um, I, I told that story. Um, by the way, the, my, my story is this is what I was told by Chief Kelly. I Obviously, I wasn't in the room. I don't know what transpired. Uh, but I know John, good Marine. Uh, he was visibly upset when he called me because he, he basically had failed. Um, his responsibility was to let me know when we had ambassadors going in to see the President of the United States since I'm responsible for everything that happens. So that's why he had called me. Uh, I, I told that particular story not so much about that, um, but about teamwork and about commitment. And I saw, I saw lots of folks. Look, the, the noise is in, in that administration was tough. I'll, I'll just be very honest. I can't tell you how many people would call me and say, Mike, you got to leave. Everyone that hangs around Donald Trump ends up in the ash heap of history. Right? It just all turns to dust. You have a good reputation. Don't screw this. Don't screw it up for that guy. I am confident that Ambassador Haley got lots and lots of those calls, too. Her decision was that she decided not to stay. She can explain and account for why. And I saw too many folks who just, they were worried about things other than delivering for America. And I had an important, both of them, they were important jobs. The president had entrusted me with that. The United States Senate had confirmed me to that position. I wasn't about to walk away from that. If I had been asked to do something illegal or unethical, it is a different story. But I wasn't going to walk away from it if they were, if I, he was going to have to fire me. And um, I saw too many people that left. And Ambassador Haley chose to leave at an incredibly important juncture while we had very complicated stuff going on at the UN. And she made everyone in the team's job more difficult. Yeah. I'm going to change gears.
Uh, you talked about in the book about uh, Obama's full troop withdrawal in Iraq in 2011 and allowed ISIS to fill the vacuum. And then let's fast forward some years and the President, President Trump's administration promised to have a full withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Yeah. And that was in early 2020 when he signed the agreement to do that. And then President Biden comes along and fulfills that promise. And that was in August of 2021. Wouldn't that have the same effect? And I think as we saw the pre President Ghani leave, yeah. the government collapsed, and uh, the Taliban came in and took over. Would you do anything differently? Would you have done anything differently? Yeah. Uh, the Afghanistan saga is an important one because I think it's reflective of how we shorthanded it America first, but how we thought about it. President Trump campaigned. Anybody have any doubt about President Trump, what he thought uh, Afghanistan? Anybody, anybody? 57 tweets. We're getting out of there. Right? <laughs> so you, you, the, the, the policy objective was unambiguous, uh, for sure. And I hit me in the face first day as CIA director when I went to brief him. CIA had a huge operation there. We, we were in the center. We think about our Marines and our Army guys and gals who were there. It was a I had a huge operation in that place. Uh, and so it was Secretary Mattis and me. Um, alongside that we're trying to execute the president's plan to get our young boys and girls home. And by the way, I was fully on board with that effort. But we also made clear to the president from the beginning um, that that wasn't the only objective. That while we had to get out, we had to do so in a way that got all the Americans out, that got our equipment out, and preserved a relatively low risk profile that we'd ever be attacked from there. So we had, and we documented this, and we briefed the president, I can't tell how many times. We never got to the place we could deliver that. We never got so, uh, we got down from about 15,000 uniformed military personnel to about 2,500 over the course of the four years. So 80, 85% reduction. Uh, and the president, I mean, I'd walk in and he'd say, my Mike, you gotta get out of there. Uh, I'd say, sir, let's go back to what we said we were gonna do. And I could never look him in the eye, nor could uh, Chief Staff, uh, Chairman Joint Chief Staff Milley or, uh, his predecessor, Joe Dumford, tell the president that it would end any other way than we saw it end. Right? We could have predicted, had we at that point in time done what President Biden did, it would have ended the same way, in a calamity. Uh, and we convinced the president each time not to do what President Biden did. I mean, we, we literally would make the case and he'd say, well, okay, go faster. So you mentioned we signed an agreement. So I, um, I traveled to Doha, signed an agreement with the Taliban. Everybody's seen the famous picture. Everybody's seen the picture of me with the Taliban? No? Good. That means you don't watch MSNBC. They, uh, they show it almost every night. We, you, you had to bring all the Afghans together. If you were going to get everyone out, these things always end with negotiated solutions. We needed that. So we brought together the Northern Alliance. We brought together human rights groups. I made sure, because it was just too much fun, that when the Taliban showed up, we had a female sitting between each and every one of them. Uh, it was also important because we wanted to send a message. So we started those negotiations in January of 20 or something like that, my first meeting. It was a really ugly meeting. The guy sitting, the number two guy, I am almost sure, killed a friend of mine. And there you are sitting across from him. But we had a mission set. This was probably five years of negotiation, 10 years of negotiation to get it right. Uh, that's all by way of background about what we did. And in December of uh, 20, after the election, you know, I walked in and told the president, we're just not going to be able to complete this on, on your watch. Uh, lots has been written about that. He, he wasn't happy about it. He, want, he wanted to get out. Um, but he always knew that he couldn't, right? And so the question becomes, would he have, in August of that next year, would he have made a different decision? I can't prove it, but I don't think so. Um, I, we, we kept relative stability there. There's a guy named Scotty Miller, class, West Point class of 83. I, I've known him for 35 years, who was the commander of our forces there. Scotty and I worked hand in hand to keep relative stability in Afghanistan while we drew down. Nobody thought you could get to that level of reduction and still keep uh, Afghan level of stability. Um, but we did because they knew. I mean, it, it, I, I talk about this a little bit. I mean, they, they would, so we signed this agreement with the Taliban. We also signed an agreement with the government of Afghanistan. Nobody talks about that. We had agreements, two agreements. Both had conditions. When the Taliban violated their conditions, I'd call Scotty and say, go give them hell. And Scotty would go give them American hell. And I'd get a call from my Taliban no negotiating partner who'd say, hey, you just did X and Y in, in you know, Kandahar or wherever. 
And I say, yeah, you all violated the agreement. He'd say, no, we didn't. I'd say, do you need me to bring the satellite photos? No, no, it's good. I got it. Um, this is what the Biden administration didn't understand. Or I think more properly, I think they knew it, but President Biden had wanted out there for so long and thought, I'm just going to rip the Band-Aid off. I'm going to make this decision. It was deeply political. Remember, he said September 11th as the original withdrawal date. And um, it's tragic. Not only did we lose 13 American lives, we left folks behind. We've never done that before. Uh, I'm, I'm, inc I'm incredibly proud that for four years, in spite of our mission set, we did not let that happen on our watch. And I, I regret that they did. They, they had a way. They could have hung on. They could have continued down the path we did. Probably still be at it. You probably still have Americans there. It's that's my best guess. Uh, but it would have been worth it, and we would have avoided so much, so much of the world no longer believing America does what it says it's going to do, which is the... Apart from the lives lost, that's the most tragic result of the withdrawal that day in August. You mentioned Millie, so let's stay on that for a second. Let's stay in Af Afghanistan for a second. So this is really interesting. Chris Whipple put out a book recently, and um, just, I think, a couple of days ago, and it said that it's called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. And he wrote about the Afghan drawdown. Mm -hmm. And this is fascinating. So he interviewed Joint Chiefs Chairman Milley, your successor, Secretary Blinken, CIA Director Burns, and all have a different recollection of the intelligence around Afghanistan's military capabilities. Mm -hmm. What happened? How, how is that possible? Yeah. Is that a failure of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan? What, what's going on there? I don't know what they wrote. I don't know what each of them said. Um, I know exactly what the president was told. Because I assume he was being told the same thing President Trump was being told. He was being told if you pull the pin, the grenade will explode. If you pull the last folks out of there until you have a negotiated set of understandings and the Taliban in a better place that have, and with fewer weapons, uh, you will have precisely what you had. So I don't know what any of those told, but I, I know what Milley told the president for, I guess he was the chairman of Joint Chiefs Staff for two and a half, three years of our time. I know what he told them every day. I know what General Dumford told them before that. I can't imagine that on January 20th of 2021, he told the president anything different. I wasn't in the room, so I don't know for sure. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is, I know Director Burns, uh, who's at the CIA now, a former State Department official. He is a really good and decent, smart guy. Uh, I don't know what he said, but I, I know what his agency knew. He is a very good guy. I also worked with him a couple times yeah. in D.C. Now Bill's a super guy. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about a topic that's on a lot of our minds these days, and that's Russia and Ukraine. Uh, U.S. has just recently announced a reversal in their decision to send over tanks, and so now we have 31 M1 Abrams, Abrams tanks going over. And Germany has said, okay, we'll do 14 Leopard 2 tanks, and then there's other countries in the mix that may come along. So now that we're doing this, and in your own party, there's people who disagree about whether to, to, to send equipment over yes. or not, and on the left as well. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? In your view, why is it important that we engage yeah. Ukraine? Why is it important yeah. that we send over equipment? Yes, Tucker Carlson went on and on about me last night. Uh, he, and I, he and I just, I, I don't know him well, I know him enough. We just have different views on this. I view there is a deep, fundamental American inter interest in providing these weapon systems to the Ukrainians so they can fight for their own sovereignty. Um, there's lots in my party that disagree with that. Your, your point is well taken. Um, you know, my, my critique of the Biden administration is that, you know, the decision to send this particular weapon systems is way too late. Best guess when there'll be an M1 tank on the ground in Ukraine that is functional and operative, six, eight months. Uh, and I, I spent my young years in an M1 tank. By the way, great job when you're 22. Uh, running up and down the East German border fighting the commies, like it's as good as it gets. I couldn't fit in a tank anymore, but it's still fun to, it's fun to think about. Yes, yes. you can. Uh, I could have there, maybe so. Uh, we, we, we could, we could the only, there's only one way that we can draw this to a conclusion. That's to change the perception for Vladimir Putin of risk associated with continuing the conflict. It's that straightforward. The only way to do that is to hasten the day that he sees that this is going to end even worse than he can already see it's going to end. And so um, I wish we would have done this and a handful of other decisions, including, importantly, intelligence sharing, so that they, the Ukrainians can conduct precision targeting 
on major facilities inside of Ukraine that the Russians are occupying. We could have done better, faster, stronger. They, the administration, I, I credit them, they're getting to a good place, but we're now a year on. Uh, and they knew in September of the year before that this invasion was going to take place, and they did nothing. Uh, you know, this, um, I don't mean this politically, um, but it was Vice President Biden who caused the previous, uh, the administration previous to ours not to send defensive weapon systems to Ukraine. Many in that, including Secretary Kerry, wanted to. Vice President Biden was steadfastly against doing that. We were the first administration to actually send defensive weapon systems to them. We also ramped up dramatically the training we provided to Ukrainian forces. I've spent a lot of time uh, when I was a CIA director in, uh, in southeast part of Ukraine, when the, your great CIA operatives were there conducting training of uh, uh, Ukrainian special operators. I'm convinced that some of that training at least has stuck and has served them pretty darn well. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad the Biden administration is doing this. I wish they would have done more, better, better, faster six, eight, ten months ago. So let's fast forward a little bit and let's hope that it doesn't take that long. But in Ukraine, let's say that we're, we're a post-war situation mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, what kind of situation is Ukraine facing? Because they don't have a very easy domestic internal situation, yeah. corruption and so on and so yep. forth. So it's a, it's a mess and it's going to be a mess. And uh, if you read any history, Zelensky is going to have a huge problem, which is when it's over, people are going to turn around and say, who let us get into this mess? Political leaders in wartime who had their countries bombed don't survive very long as a historical matter. So he's got a leadership challenge in post-conflict Ukraine as well. There are, there are three things that are what I'll call Western roles. And I didn't talk about this in the other context. Europe should have done more, better, faster, too. They've been on there, uh, almost used an adult word. Uh, we're, we're, we're at a beautiful Christian university. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, will, I, will, I, will, I, I will admit that I do not always do it, but tonight I'm going to do better. Uh, they, they have been on their tuchus for 30 years, and uh, they, have, they have not done remotely enough to defend their own sovereignty, and they put themselves in a position that created the very risk that we're seeing play out today. Uh, I've seen numbers, they vary, but call it something in the order of six to $800 billion to just restore the basic infrastructure needs for the Ukrainian people. You have millions of refugees, some of which are in Poland and in Europe, some of which are inside Russia. Uh, families that have been taken there. This is, this is really hard to find your way back from. Uh, so it is going to be a complicated situation, and it is, as you suggested, it is added, it makes it a triple twist on the double somersault that Ukrainian's government was deeply corrupt heading into this and complicated at, at multiple levels and so forth. And I give Zelensky credit, he has risen to the fight in ways that are unimaginably noble and good and decent, but he is going to have his hands full uh, when that ends. And the West, it will be in the West's interest to do two things. One, provide them the things that we can to help them build their country back. But second, set up a, a set of conditions, and I'm intentionally ambiguous here because I don't want to tie the hands of the current administration, um, a situation that makes sure that we don't end up in this same damn place again two years from now or four years from now. It will start with a ceasefire. That will be the right path forward, but it can't end with a ceasefire. This has to be done in a way that you get, I'll call it permanency, nothing's permanent. Uh, but get something that looks and feels very much like a permanent resolution where you have all of the NATO countries aligned in a way that is sufficient to, retur, to deter whoever Vladimir Putin's successor is. So when I think about Ukraine and Russia, I can't help but think about uh, former ambassador to Ukraine, Masha Yovanovitch. And so I think about her, and if you, in looking back, do you think that that was a mistake to pull her in 2019 from Ukraine? I do not. Say more about that. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> presidents get to choose their ambassadors. Uh, those ambassadors are duty-bound to do what presidents ask them to do. Uh, ambassador Yovanovitch was not in for the team. Uh, I, I, there's a few things I can't say because I'm sure there's a subpoena en route. Uh, but we actually handled this situation as well as can be. If you, if you all remember the storyline that was going on, you had the Russia hoax hanging over our head. You had the famous perfect phone call. Um, like, I wouldn't have used the term perfect phone call. Um, I've never, just so you know, I've never had a perfect phone call. 
never even had a perfect conversation with my wife. Um, right? I mean, this I, is I, a pretty per perfect conversation. Per perfect is hard to come by. Uh, but I always laugh. So you had this famous phone call. It's now been released. Everybody can see the summary. It's not quite a transcript, but it's a summary. And I remember getting asked about this by the media, the hyenas in my room. And I remember thinking, I did not say this at the time, but I so wanted to. I, I wanted to say, oh my goodness, that doesn't make the top 10. <laughs> like, like, I've been on all of these. Let me, let me show you what an A game looks like. Uh, we actually treated Ambassador Ivanovich very fair. We gave her every opportunity to demonstrate that she was on the team when she didn't. By the way, we didn't fire her. The story is, oh, they, she was fired. No, she was brought back. It's not uncommon that you transition ambassador. She was brought back. We gave her opportunity to figure out what she wanted to do. She went and I think she went back to, to teach at one of the universities, local universities or something like that. All, all fine. Um, that didn't make the president happy. He wanted, he wanted something different. But I thought that was a reasonable way to approach this problem, so to make sure that we had an ambassador there was fully committed to our vision of how to move forward in Ukraine. So no, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I think I, got, I, I think I got that decision right on behalf of the country. One more question about Ukraine and Russia. Do you think since the invasion of Ukraine that we've lowered the threshold for threats for uh, nuclear talk, uh, even uh, threats on war? Let's think about China and Taiwan. Let's think about North Korea. Let's think about uh, Turkey that just came out with the threat to Greece in December of pa this past yeah. year. Are we just, this is willy-nilly now? Is this our world? Uh, I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. Uh, I think we'll have to see how it ends. This is another one of the reasons that I think the West and America has a responsibility to help the country that was, uh, was invaded in an unprovoked way, right? When they need to... The world needs to see that, no, you can actually maintain a Western alliance in the face of those kinds of threats. Uh, it also reminds us of the ever-present obligation to deter. And I talk about risk in the book a lot and models of deterrence. Uh, every administration faces this. It is a very complicated, I describe it as a mean and nasty world. It is, it is, it is all of that. And you, you are blessed to be here in the United States of America, and you should know that that also uh, we have an incredible obligation. There is no other nation that's going to pull off deterrence in the way that America can. I love the French. I love the Germans. That's mostly true. Um, uh, the, the Indians, the Singaporeans, the Japanese, there is no other nation in the world that can actually be central, the central pillar to maintain deterrence or create peace in the Middle East in the way we did with the Abraham Accords. It is us. And it is glorious, and it is oftentimes expensive and burdensome, and we oftentimes send our young people, put them in harm's way as a result of that, but we are, um, we are blessed by this, and we benefit from that every day, not only in the terms, material terms, and commerce, and wealth, and healthcare, and all the things that we have here, but we're blessed with it too, because we're a heck of a lot safer here because of that good work that we do in lots of different ways and lots of different forms, not just our military, um, but our commercial work, too. You mentioned Abraham Accords. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. With Israel's newest government that's come into, in, in mm. place and the new uh, national security minister that they have, do you think that we're at risk? Do you think the Abraham Accords are at risk? And congratulations to you. Yeah. Do you think, and, and is there room for more? Yeah. So thank you for the kind words, but uh, I, I was part of it. There was a big team, Mr. Kushner, Secretary Mnuchin, the Treasury. We had two great ambassadors, a guy named John Ricolta in the Emirates and a, a fellow named David Friedman uh, in Israel. Actually, he and I just did a great video. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to gonna sell this thing. <laughs> we walked through Judea and Samaria down the old, what's known as the old Bible Road, Highway 60, from Nazareth to Shiloh to, to Dan. It's this amazing story of the history of this place in Israel. And I mention that because you had, you had he and I working there who had this deep understanding that Israel was central to the security of America and to our Judeo-Christian founding. And so that's a story of the, a piece of the Abraham Accords that I think is often overlooked. The Israelis knew that. They knew that Friedman and Pompeo would have their back if this all ended badly. Uh, there were other pieces to this too. Uh, and this really gets to your question. I don't think there's risk that it comes undone. Uh, I think it's a zero probability event that any Arab nation will sign an agreement with Israel while President Biden and his team are in office. They don't have any confidence in America. They're deeply disturbed by the policy that this administration has taken that is back to what 
frankly, President Obama has done. I'm not, in that sense, I'm not even judging that. I'm just telling you what it is their view of this is. Their view is that if you're going to sit there and negotiate with the Iranians through the Russians, we want no part of being around America and these crazy peace deals you guys are all presenting. They, they fear Iran. Iran is the world's largest state sponsor of terror, and the Americans are sitting there telling them, it's okay if you enrich uranium, right? The best deal ever proposed by the Americans was they'd be allowed to enrich uranium. You should know that we've told the Emiratis they cannot enrich uranium. And it won't, su- I say this in a way that doesn't violate any confidence, it won't surprise you that that makes them angry, that we treat our enemies worse or better than we treat our friends. And so long as that's the model, you're not going to get anybody to sign up for that. Uh, a whole bunch of things came together uh, to allow these great leaders, Mohammed bin Zayed in the Emirates, the Crown Prince in Bahrain, the Moroccan and Sudanese leader, and in fact, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, who greenlighted every bit of this. None of those Abraham Accords get signed without the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia signing off on it. Uh, they're not about to do that when they don't know that the United States of America is going to be with them if they have a tough day. Mm. Who is America's biggest threat? Or I guess it could be worded, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. It's not a particularly close call. So from outside the United States, external threats, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Not, not a close call. I, you're, I'm happy to just think about what I learned on day one at West Point. It's about your adversary's capabilities and intent. Big country, enormous economy, space force, cyber force, huge missile testing uh, capability, a nuclear program that is not quite at the level of the United States and Russia, but getting there, uh, and then intent. Xi Jinping has made pretty clear what his objective is, that to ensure American decline, the decline of the West, and to create a hegemonic power that rivals any in the history of the globe. Uh, and so that combination of power and intent presents a big threat to us here. And last thing I'll say, because I can go on for China for weeks, uh, in fact, I, 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 I view China as such a serious challenge, not insurmountable. We'll, we'll prevail here, but such a serious challenge that sometimes I talk about it and I think I'm crazy. <laughs> but they're inside the gates. They, they literally, the, the largest spying operation ever in the history of the United States of America was right here in Houston, Texas, in your great state. It was being run out of their diplomatic facility, their, the consulate in Houston, Texas. And the United States didn't shut it down for an awfully long time. Because we feared, oh, there'll be reprisals. And then I finally, like, I went to Director Ray, the head of the FBI, whose, whose job it is to do counterintelligence to protect us from this kind of thing. And he's like, Mike, it's just too big. We can't, we can't do this. I'm like, all right, let's just shut it down. He's like, game on. And we did. Um, they're buying land near our military facilities. They're still stealing billions of dollars worth of intellectual property. By the way, I think about land. Think about this. Chinese Communist Party buying land near U.S. military facilities. You all should go out tomorrow, call your real estate agent, and try and buy Chinese land near a Chinese military facility. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, and then the last piece is one. Um, they, they also come at this from a, perspe- a perspective where God is a risk to them. And we should always keep in mind that there is this there is this faith-based element that we worked so hard on in the Trump administration. We knew that religious freedom around the world matters. So very different from Russia, where the Orthodox Church exists, and there, China has none of that. China is a place that drives churches underground and takes Uyghurs because of their Muslim faith and imprisons a million of them in what look for all the world to be concentration camps. And so it is a creature that is fundamentally different, and they want America to continue down its increasingly secular path. And uh, the United States needs to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's a little bit out of the Secretary of State's footprint, but it is something that we worked on diligently all across the world. Persecuted Christians in northern Iraq, the Uyghurs in China, uh, I I could go on. It was a a big piece of our policy. I had a great guy who was former governor of my home state, Sam Brownback, who was our ambassador of religious freedom, and it, it got to the top of my stack every day, too. It was another element of America as a force for good in the world. I'm going to turn to questions, but I have one last question. Yes, ma'am. So it seems like on the Republican side, it's going to be a rather crowded party coming up in something uh, in, uh, next year. Yes. So well, I know we're the not going to The cost of a hotel room in Iowa is going up. <laughs> exactly. How would you know I was going to say that? Uh, I know we're not going to make news here tonight. Right. But if one were going to think about running for president, what would one consider? 
Oh my gosh, uh, I actually know the answer to this. Uh, at least I know my answer, perhaps more properly. Uh, Susan and I are thinking, praying about it, trying to figure out uh, what the Lord's guidance to seek his discernment. To, to put yourself out there, to make the case that you, among 330 million Americans, ought to be president of the United States is pretty audacious for someone like me. Uh, and you better believe a couple things. One, that you, uh, you have a chance to make a case and make an argument and get enough votes to be successful so that you can get elected. Uh, but more importantly, if the people of America chose you, that you know who you are sufficiently, you are prepared to fight every day for the things that really matter, and that you have a theory of the case on how to make this thing, this big beast, your government actually deliver against your promises. Because it's one thing to make the commitments. It is, it is a second thing to have a, an understanding of sufficient scale that says, no, I, I think I understand how to make this, uh, this thing, this precious set of institutions that we were bequeathed by the founders to make it actually uh, work against the problem set that you promised the American people. Those are the things one should think about. I think if you conclude that it is the moment, it's the right time, you indeed ought to get after it. And then, you know, the American people may have a different view and you get to go back to doing what you were doing. Well, doing what you were doing. <laughs> You've had quite the career. <laughs> Running machine shop. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, this right. is what okay. I did. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I, I, I also taught fifth grade Sunday school. I was a pretty good fifth grade Sunday school teacher, too. Okay, Best question. preparation to be Secretary of State. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. You all know this. If, if you keep fifth grade, Sundays, fifth grade boys in their seat and you do church politics. Come on. This is the battle, the proving ground. Yes. Well, speaking of the youth, our first question is from a student. And this student asks... Did you always know you wanted a job in politics? And if so, what was your first step to get to where you are today? Um, no, I, 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 I didn't. It wasn't something, it wasn't a lifelong dream of mine. I was around it a little bit as a kid. I mean, my, neither, my parents, my, neither my parents graduated from college, but they were always keenly interested by what, the way. My mother was a good Kansas Republican. My father, a good Democrat. They would lie to each other about, oh, honey, let's just not go vote, and then they'd both go vote. Uh, I, I think that's how it rolled. Um, but they always made sure, right? They were paying attention to what was going on, and so I had some exposure to it. Uh, but I didn't, it wasn't something I ever really, I didn't, I didn't dream about it, I didn't long for it, but opportunity presented itself. I was active, I was helping Republicans uh, in little ways and campaigns for a good part of my life after I left the military. Uh, but then uh, in the early 2000s, I, I had this opportunity where the congressman from the place that I lived in Wichita was headed to the Senate, uh, and I was unhappy. Uh, President Obama was spending too much of our money. Little did I know uh, we'd, we'd be in a lot worse shape today than we were that day, uh, and I decided to campaign. There were already seven Republicans in the race when I joined it. Another fun story. So when I get in the race, we did some polling. It would have been early January of 2010. Uh, the others were mostly elected officials, uh, and my name ID when they did the first poll was 2%. And I remember telling the pollster, so I have a big family in Kansas, in Winfield and Wellington, I have a couple hundred cousins, and I remember telling the pollster, 2%, that's just family. <laughs> and Liz, here's what's funny. I know them. Only half of them would have voted for me. <laughs> so uh, so it was, it was a, there was a long way to go. Uh, but to the, to the young person's question, um, I always have had something, some idea of public service as being really important, uh, and that... Look, I thought I was doing public service running the machine shop, too. There were 400 families dependent on our, our collective success every day. But that's always been something that was part of my heart. And I always knew, my parents taught me pretty early on how lucky I was to, to live in this special place. And so uh, opportunity met the moment, and here I am. Mm. Okay, this is a question about something we haven't talked about, but that I'm very interested in. Uh, the international affairs budget... Uh, is less than 1% of the federal budget. This is true. Uh, and it says, uh, with all the pettiness, the, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, with, but with all the polarization and the, the pettiness in our, our, in our politics and our government these days, uh, how can we preserve this section of the budget instead of um, you know, cutting it out with all the, the arguing that's going on? Yeah. I actually think my, my sense of that uh, is it's probably about the right amount. 
I actually think you could perform a good deal of the State Department's function uh, with a little less resource. I don't actually think it's about, the State Department's about $70 billion, so think of that. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, 7 or 8% what we spend Department of Defense, something like that, coming on close to a trillion dollars a year for the Department of Defense. Um, I actually think the, the budget is adequate. The challenges we faced there weren't resources. Uh, I always managed to find the resources to do what we needed. Uh, the challenges were making sure you had clarity of understanding of the mission. Uh, I, I, don't th I don't think there's any risk that that budget's going to go away material. There's always debates, frankly, on both sides of the aisle on humanitarian assistance and that kind of work, uh, right? Sending uh, Americans food when there are Americans starving at home. Um, I, th those, those, have, those arguments have great appeal if you're a politician going home. Uh, I actually think the work that we do in those places is really important, but I think we've got the right resource level. Hmm. Why would 31 tanks, tanks make a difference in Ukraine? Or how can? Uh, so uh, so th 31 tanks aren't likely in their own right to, to turn the tide. Uh, and I say turn the tide, you know, there's this sense in America, I think if you ask most Americans watching the news, they'd say the Ukrainians have done great work and there's, it's inevitable that they will prevail. I don't believe that for a second. Um, this is still, there's the risk that the Russians will man, uh, man counteroffensive, they will conscript more Russians and that they will begin to push back again. It's difficult to imagine them getting to Kiev, but we should never forget that wars turn on a dime. Uh, the 31 tanks do a couple things, and I think the end number, by the time you get the challengers from the Brits and the leopards from the Germans uh, and uh, some vehicles coming from Poland that are also German leopard tanks, I think you're going to end up with a couple of hundred, so think uh, six battalions worth of tanks. That will make it, to the extent the Ukrainians can manage to both train to the standard on the equipment and then maintain these things. So the maintenance, you, you, you think your Dodge Daytona takes maintenance. The maintenance supply chain for an M1 tank is a daunting undertaking. I assume it's the same for the Leopard tank. You break, uh, what do you think of them as the uh, torsion bars? You think of them, uh, you think of things that just bust on them every day when you're driving through muddy, difficult terrain. It is going to take a lot of work to move that forward. And it's not likely the United States is going to put mechanics and maintenance people forward to do that training for them. Um, but if you got a couple hundred tanks when they were capable of both establishing defensive positions, uh, providing enough security for them that they don't end up uh, suffering from artillery strikes on top of them. The Russians will make this their first or second priority target. It'll be air defense systems followed by uh, armored vehicles, uh, and you can protect them. You can probably begin to man counteroffensives that are material. And those, uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased having been an armor officer, but there's nothing like a tank battalion rolling on you to send the enemy scurrying. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, some of the resistance for Secretary of Defense uh, Austin was maintenance and fuel costs and, and getting them actually there. Yeah, Ma maintenance, maintenance, training, and then I'll call it preservation and security. They're, these are big things. The Russians will have the capability to know where they are, and to the extent they have precision-guided capabilities, they will, they will focus on them. Does the war in Ukraine continue if Putin is ousted from power, and let me add, or if he actually is sick and dies? It probably goes on. I, I never met any Russian leaders that didn't have the same theory of the case. Yeah, it, it's hard for us to appreciate how, how deeply they hold this view of Ukraine as being part of Russia. It's not only the ethnic Russians that are there, uh, people of Russian descent, but they just, as a historical matter, if, if you asked me if Kansas was part of the United States, I would say yes. And then you'd ask me why. And it'd take me a second. I could explain it. But it would take me a little bit. If you asked Vladimir Putin and the folks around him, is Ukraine part of Russia, they would say yes. And if you asked them why, it would take them a second too. It's that much in their DNA. Mm. So this doesn't, I don't think this ends because a particular leader goes away. It ends when whoever's in charge there simply comes to the perception that it's just not worth it anymore that their economy is struggling, which it is not yet, which, or their military can no longer sustain itself, or Russian mothers decide they don't want to send their boys to the front line anymore. Those are really the three things that can drive a conclusion to this, and each of those means uh, more tools for the Ukrainian military. Hmm. I read that you had graduated first in your class from West Point. What motivated you to achieve this? Uh, goodness. Uh, uh, scared of my mom. <laughs> uh, 
that more truth than you know. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I've always just worked hard, and that's what I did there, too. You should know it's, it's kind of a funny thing. So first in your class at West Point, I get introduced that way all the time. And my good friends, my classmates, will be sitting in the audience sometimes, and you can, w- look, you can watch the look on their face. So Mike Pompeo, first in his class at West Point, and they'll just roll their eyes and like, dude, like, get off it. That's 40 years ago. <laughs> like, 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 do something important. Uh, uh, it's, and I, this is for the, I know we've got students here in the audience, too. Uh, you know, graduating number one, who knows uh, exactly how that happened. But I, I can take credit for this much. Um, I, I, I literally worked my tail off every day. There were things I wasn't very good at. I, I, I don't think it actually ends up in the book. But you took the part of your, this wasn't academic. It was partly physical, partly military leadership. There were other cadets with uh, better uh, grade point average than just the academic stuff. But you would take this obstacle course and you had to climb up on a shelf in this rope. And I couldn't do either of them. But I'll be darned if I didn't on Sunday afternoon, at night after I was done studying, I just went down there and just worked at it for months until I could climb the rope just about as fast as everybody and I could get up on the shelf almost as fast as everyone. And so there's things that we're all gifted with that the Lord has given us gifts and there are always things that the Lord said, no, no, you're going to have to figure that one on your own. Uh, And we should all, when you're focused on a mission, uh, recognize that if you work at something hard enough, you can, you may not ever be the best, but you can, you can do better. Last question. What was the best lesson you learned from your platoon sergeant? Yeah, someone's read a little bit of the book. Um, so young lieutenant out of West Point, all that good stuff, right? Hot stuff. Uh, I show up at my first assignment in Germany in the Second Armored Cavalry Regiment. I was Bravo platoon leader, Bravo troop, uh, second platoon, Bravo troop, platoon leader. And I go immediately land in Frankfurt, grab my gear, and head to the field for a training exercise. And I show up, and there's my platoon sergeant. His name is Sergeant First Class Pretree. E7, probably been in the Army 25 years, something like that. And I was the senior officer. I was the, I was the officer. He was the NCO. So I walk up, and he salutes me. And then he says, Lieutenant, you'll do really well if you just shut up for a while. <laughs> and I remember, I was a little taken aback, like... But he was actually right. He was dead on right. And I actually did. I listened to the soldiers who knew how to assemble and disassemble an M50, uh, an M250 caliber machine gun. I watched them as they taught me how to take a tank tread off an M1 tank. I, I learned from them good tactics. Um, I had a thing or two that I knew that they didn't too. I'd, I'd had more education than many of them. Uh, but there was a lot of leadership coming from just listening. And I have tried in my life at every job I've had since then to try and make sure that I took those around me seriously and I tried to listen to them. And so if, if, if Sergeant First Class Preetree is still out there, my second platoon sergeant, a guy named Sergeant First Class Lay, I, I still stay in touch with. But Sergeant Preetree was right to tell me, just shut up, young man, and uh, to listen. And if we'd all do that a little more, uh, listen just a little more, you don't end up having to agree when you're done. And in that role, I was in charge. If the platoon succeeded, I'd get the credit, and if it failed, it was going to be on me. But he taught me an awful lot about how to learn and to lead, and listening is a good thing for us all to remind ourselves of uh, in every walk of life. I so agree. And on that note, that excellent note, uh, thank you, Secretary Pompeo. I want to sincerely thank Adam, DBU, uh, the DBU's Institute for Global Engagement, as well as our promotional partner, Calling County Republican Party. And then also just a quick reminder, if you would like to pick up additional copies of Never Give an Inch, you can do that at the check-in area. Secretary. Hey, one closing please, thought. Please, please. I know please. everybody needs to get on with their life. My, my wife reminds me that when we talk about hard things that it sometimes seems very dark. And I get that. She's like, Mike, they walk out and they like pop a Xanax <laughs> or, 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 uh, or, you know, they got to go home and they have a stiff drink. I don't know. Baptist, you drink, you got good. Yeah. Um, please know this. Mike Pompeo believes we will find our way through every one of these things. I am deeply long on this country. You all came out here tonight to listen to me. This encourages, it heartens me. It gives me great hope. I, I also know the Lord's watching over this place and that combination of good people who are doing the right thing that you all are, right? Raising your families, going to the PTA meeting, whatever it is, cooking the chili dinner for your church on Wednesday night. Um, 
being a member of your homeowners association, homeowners association board. That was my first elected office, homeowners association board. <laughs> a bad start. Uh, please know this. I, I am very confident we're going to get another 250 great years here, that your kids and grandkids will have every opportunity that we had. So thank you. Thanks for being here. God bless you all.